it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Is Thursday, May 12, 2022. My mother's birthday. Happy birthday, Mom. I love you. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't listen as we air live, we have a podcast. It's free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is there or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter. Same handle for Instagram as well. But the one-stop shop for all of it is GuyBensonShow.com. If you don't know me, if you're new to the program, welcome. We're very happy to have you here. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor in addition to hosting this show. And on the TV side tonight, I will encourage you to tune in to Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. It'll be myself, Greg, Cat and the whole crew with the new studio, which is beautiful. They debuted it, I think, at the beginning of this month. They've only had a few shows in the new studio. It looks amazing on TV. I can't wait to see it in person and a real audience. I think at its peak in the old studio, there were maybe two dozen, maybe three dozen people there. Now it's closer to 100. So I'm stoked. I'm a little nervous because of the bigger audience. Hopefully I'll feed off the energy tonight, and it airs again, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News, Gutfeld, exclamation point. I'm on that panel. Here is our lineup on the radio today. Dagan McDowell, our Fox News colleague, she will join us here later in the hour talking about inflation, talking about the new decision from the Biden administration to again limit drilling for energy and oil here in this country on our territory, on our soil. As gas prices hit new highs, we'll ask Dagan about that. Dana Perino will be here at the top of the next hour. It was just her birthday and a big one for her, a milestone. We'll ask her about that, plus some of the politics of the day as well. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn will be our guest about halfway through the show, just after 4.30 Eastern time, Republican from Tennessee, She will be here looking forward to that conversation about what's happening in the Senate, what's happening outside Supreme Court justices' homes. I know she has some strong feelings on those issues. And then finally, our last guest of the show today, Bill Hemmer. The other half of the tandem at America's Newsroom, we have both of them here on the show, not together separately, but Perino and Hemmer on the same radio show. That is, that's rare. It's like a a solar eclipse or something. It's very exciting. Bill Hemmer will be here, and God knows what we'll talk about. I usually have some plans, and then he has other plans, and we get off on a tangent, and it's fun. He's a great guest. So Hemmer kicking off our happy hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time here on today's Guy Benson Show. I want to start, since she's almost done, tomorrow is her last day at the White House. Circle back. Jen Psaki, 
is the outgoing press secretary. We talked about her replacement, Corinne Jean-Pierre, who has called Fox News racist, the pro-Israel group APAC racist. She said that the election was stolen in 2018 from Stacey Abrams in Georgia. That's a lie. She said the 2016 president, uh, presidential election was stolen from Hillary Clinton by Donald Trump. That's a lie. So that's the new press secretary as of Monday. But for now, it's still circle back. And she's doing a couple exit interviews with media outlets and that sort of thing. And I guess she did a, a breakfast and a Q&A at a breakfast. And there was a reporter who was there who tweeted that, among other things, during this discussion, Saki said she's not a Wordle player. So in case you were curious about that, um, she said the toughest part of her job has been the threats that she has received, including threats that name her kids, which, as someone in the public eye, to a lesser extent in my case, I understand. I hate that. I hate that for her. That shouldn't happen. It's horrible. I don't care how much you dislike the president or the administration. There's no place for that. And making threats against people, especially their kids, is just the lowest of low. She said some of those threats have been reported to Secret Service. She also bemoaned and decried what she says is a tactic by the local county Republican Party where she lives in Virginia, which happens to be in the same neck of the woods where I live. She says that the county Republican Party has circulated her home address. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't think that that's good. If they did do that, they shouldn't have done it. However, I wonder if she sees the irony at all. That she's out there complaining, I think rightly, about partisans, if, if in fact she's correct about who did this. No matter who did it, if she's complaining about ideological opponents or partisans circulating her home address while she's also wringing her hands, understandably, about threats against her and her family, does she not put two and two together? It's like, oh, wait, Jen, are you, do you not like that? Do you not like your address being publicized without your permission by partisans for political reasons? Are you uncomfortable with the idea that people who dislike what you're doing for a living might show up at your house? Do you not like those things, Jen? Because last I checked from the podium at the White House, she has defended or at least refused to condemn the practice of doxing and harassing at their homes Supreme Court justices. And it's not like that happened a year ago, and now we're doing a little flashback. She did it in the last few days. And I just, I don't really know if that's what you're saying in your capacity as the White House spokesperson. I don't really know if you then have a right to turn around and be upset about basically the exact same thing happening to you. If you don't like it happening to you, then it's not defensible when there's other people in the proverbial rhetorical crosshairs. That should be obvious. Also, the purpose of the intimidation against the justices is to try to achieve an outcome or prevent an outcome, which is, based on federal law, illegal. It goes beyond mere disgusting or bullying 
tactics or harassment, it goes to the next level, which is why there's a federal statute against it. I just found it very interesting that she decided to gripe about this specific thing, which I think in any other context or in the abstract, she'd have every right to be upset. She should be. I've been very consistent on this about what the line is. Problem is, she's drawn a line somewhere else. I don't know why she wouldn't actually publish her home address. It's just America, right? Just passion. That's what she said. Just passion. Peaceful protest. Here's my address. She could tweet it out. She's got, what, one more day with access to the press secretary Twitter handle. She could just put her address out there and and people can show up and, and voice their passion. Is that what she wants? Of course not. Is that what I'm advocating? No. I'm being facetious to make the point. And I don't think she's a dumb person. Surely this was not lost on her. In any case, since we're on the subject of Jen Psaki, I want to do a little bit of an actual flashback, something that is a little bit in the weeds and something of a pull from a few months ago, I think, at this point. And the reason I want to bring this up is we are told a lot about the scourge of misinformation and disinformation, which is why they've got this Ministry of Truth disinformation board chaired by that woman. What's her name? The woke Mary Poppins, Nina, Nina Jankowitz. We played the audio of her singing about uh, in the Mary Poppins style about disinformation, even though she herself has promulgated and spread misinformation multiple times, including, as it turns out, Russian disinformation herself. So that's fun. She's in charge of all this. I'd like to report. I don't know if they're listening. I'm sure they are. I, I would imagine that the Ministry of Truth would monitor shows like this to make sure that we're not doing misinformation. So I would like to report some misinformation to woke Mary Poppins. The Washington Free Beacon, which is a right-leaning publication, did an expose a few months ago about drug paraphernalia and specifically crack pipes being included in some kits that were funded by the Biden administration. And at the time... This was straight up denied by HHS, by the White House, by Saki herself from the White House podium. This was in February of this year, so a few months ago, Saki saying no crack pipes, cut 21. Were they never a part of the kit or were they removed in response to this reporting and this pushback? They were never a part of the kit. It was inaccurate reporting and we wanted to put out information to make that clear. What is in the safe smoking kit? Uh, a safe smoking kit may contain alcohol swabs, lip balm, other materials to promote hygiene and reduce the transmission of diseases like HIV and hepatitis. I would note that what we're really talking about here is steps that we're taking as a federal government to address the opioid epidemic, which is killing uh, tens of thousands, if not more, Americans uh, every single day, week, month of the year. Uh, we put out this statement, though, because there was inaccurate information out there. Or I should say HHS put out this statement because there was inaccurate information out there. Inaccurate reporting, inaccurate information. There were never crack pipes in the kits. Now, is this a very important issue? Is this the most pressing issue in America today? No, it's not. This is like a little scoop from the Free Beacon. It was interesting, but it was denied up and down categorically by Jen Psaki and the administration, as you just heard. She said the crack pipes were never in any of these kits. Inaccurate reporting. Well, 
the Washington Free Beacon followed up and got their hands on a number of these kits. Here's the headline today. Yes, safe smoking kits include free crack pipes. We know because we got them. Quote, crack pipes are distributed at safe smoking kits up and down the East Coast, raising questions about the Biden administration's assertion that its multimillion dollar harm reduction grant program wouldn't funnel taxpayer dollars to drug paraphernalia. The findings are the result of a Washington Free Beacon series of visits to five harm reduction organizations and calls to over two dozen more. In fact, every organization we visited, facilities in Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Richmond, Virginia, included crack pipes in the kits. The kits became the subject of a national attention, of national attention, rather, in the wake of a Free Beacon report in February, indicating that a $30 million harm reduction program was set to fund the distribution of free crack pipes in so-called safe smoking kits. Pressed on the matter... In a press briefing, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki issued a full-throated denial, which we just played for you. While the contents of safe smoking kits vary from one organization to another, and while those from some organizations may not contain crack pipes, all of the organizations we visited made crack pipes as well as paraphernalia for the use of heroin, cocaine, and crystal meth readily available without requiring or offering rehabilitation services suggesting that pipes are included in many, if not most, of the kits distributed across the country. All of the centers we visited are run by health-focused nonprofits and government agencies, the types of groups eligible to receive funding starting this month from the Biden administration's $30 million grant program. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. Not only was the White House denial and the HHS denial apparently wrong, and there are crack pipes in these kits, and again, this is a very niche boutique issue. The bigger issue is the White House just lying and the administration not telling the truth and issuing a blanket denial about something that was in fact wrong. And these are the people who purport to be the guardians of truth and real information and sort of the the vanguard against misinformation and disinformation to the point that they have the ministry of truth. They often are the subject. They are the purveyors They are the spreaders of misinformation, and this is another one. I think we might need some truthing from woke Mary Poppins and her band of Mary truthers if they actually care about any of this, or do they actually care about cracking down on right-wing stuff that they don't like? I think we all know the answer. Now, we are critical sometimes on this show of fact-checkers, people who take it upon themselves. PolitiFact is the worst. It's basically just a Democratic Party, uh, you know, campaign arm in a lot of cases, PolitiFact and others, the fact checkers, back in February, fact checked this story from the Free Beacon. And they fact checked the Free Beacon as spreading false information. Why? Let me read it to you from the Free Beacon story today. These findings contradict claims from a raft of fact checkers who, based on the White House's ex post facto denial, deemed our reporting to be false. And they quote example after example where the fact checkers just took the White House's word for it. Journalists reported something. The White House, run by Democrats in this case, said, no, that's not true. That's not happening. And the fact checkers, quote unquote, lined up to regurgitate and amplify the White House claim. 
saying, oh, the White House is telling the truth. The Washington Free Beacon, they're a bunch of liars. False. But as it turns out, it wasn't false. The fact checkers were playing to the music or dancing along to the music of their bosses in the Democratic Party. The White House insisted that we all just rely on their word. Apparently that's good enough to get a fact check written up. And the White House was wrong. And if they will lie about something as small as a $30 million program and crack pipes, they will lie about much bigger things too, obviously. So again, I'm just flagging this for the Ministry of Truth. I hope woke Mary Poppins will let the medicine go down and actually look into this one. I won't hold my breath. I would not encourage that for you to do either. Just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals, to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I'm Guy Benson. If you listened to the show yesterday, I did a long monologue in the middle hour, over three segments, and I encourage you to go and listen to it if you didn't get the chance on a free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com about yet another disconnect between what we were told was true and what actually is true. And that was about the state of Georgia, their voting law from last year, which sparked all the boycotts and the anger and the heated rhetoric and the racial rhetoric and all of it. President Biden called it Jim Crow on steroids. Worse than Jim Crow. And some major companies and organizations like Major League Baseball went along with these lies from the left-wing activists all the way up to the president. And we gave you an update, a reality-based update, on the Jim Crow on steroids suppression, so-called. And I want to update you again here today via Gabriel Sterling from the Secretary of State's office in Georgia. Quote, we are at 223 percent of 2018 turnout as of today in Georgia. Compared to this point four years ago in the primary elections and the voting turnout, they are 223 percent higher under the new Jim Crow on steroids voter suppression regime. 
<laughs> Republicans have already surpassed their primary votes from that cycle already. And we're still weeks away from the election. Democrats are going to surpass their numbers expected this weekend. It's not suppression. It was a giant lie. And there needs to be accountability. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is there, among other things. That podcast is free on demand every day. With us now is our colleague, Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network, a business correspondent as well for Fox News Channel. She appears every day on Mornings with Maria, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern on FBN. Dagan, great to have you back. Guy, thank you for having me. I would like to just start with your overall thoughts on inflation, the direction of inflation, the report that was out yesterday, and then the new data out today. We talked to Larry Kudlow a bit about it here at the top of the show yesterday, but we have more numbers today. Your overall big picture thoughts? Uh, That inflation is still um, stubbornly, awfully high. 8.3% year-over-year increase in just consumer prices. And we always talk about inflation, but the American people know it and see it every day and struggle to deal with it. For the rich, inflation might be an inconvenience, but it's a legitimate hardship every day for working men and women. And I'll point to just today, it's not getting better, um, in part because the Federal Reserve has yet to truly act to tame inflation. Last year, Jay Powell, the Fed chief, and this was picked up by the White House, kept calling it transitory. He might not be using that word, but he's still acting like he thinks that this runaway, almost 40-year high inflation is going to go away on its own. You've got overnight lending rates are at 1%. Inflation, consumer inflation, is north of 8%. In order to tame inflation, that short-term interest rate needs to be above the inflation rate, and they are dragging their feet in dealing with it. The balance sheet is $9 trillion. At least half of that in the last year, half of the uh, purchases from the Federal Reserve went to sop up debt from the federal government, or about half the debt issued by the federal government was sopped up by the Federal Reserve. They're not, they're not, they haven't even started reducing that or, or destroying money or removing the hooch from the punch bowl, so to speak. So I, I just think that they're not acting quick enough. What's going on in the market right now? Now, I'll tell you, in terms of inflation, that one of the biggest problems, the reason it will probably get worse, not improve a little bit, is because today gasoline prices, regular unleaded and diesel, are at new all-time highs for the United States. 4.41 for regular unleaded diesel is north of $5.55 a gallon. Diesel is the fuel that runs the economy. It, it, 90% of farm equipment runs on diesel, uh, trains, any kind of delivery mechanism. And so that diesel price is going to feed through to 
everything that gets shipped, everything that is grown or raised. And so this is only going to get worse. And also the, the, core, the core inflation number was up again yesterday, right? right? And that's four right. straight months. Right. It was higher in, last month than it was in March. It was actually double, I think, if my memory serves. It was came in at 0.6% increase month over month. So you take the core number is you take out food and energy. Mm-hmm. And it was things like airline prices. Now, people, for the most part, a lot of people are flying for leisure. They could, you know, as they're trying to manage their monthly income, they could make that decision. But again, you're going to drive somewhere instead of flying. Driving, you're still paying a record high for gasoline prices. But those are the calculations that people are making. And wages are falling when adjusting for inflation. Wages were up last month, uh, average hourly earnings up 5.5%. When inflation is running at 8.3%, that's just a simple comparison that shows you that people's wages are not keeping up with the runaway inflation. Yeah, no, it's like a, it's a pay cut, really, effectively. Yeah, it, it's it is it is a pay cut, and real disposable um, income has fallen, and it doesn't seem like this White House is doing the White House isn't doing anything to stop it, and the Federal Reserve. What's likely to happen if the Fed gets aggressive enough, as it should, to fight this inflation? We will be in a recession probably by the end of the year. The economy already contracted uh, in the first quarter, so people. Their purchasing power is diminished because of inflation, and then you couple in – so if the Fed starts raising interest rates, then the cost of money becomes more expensive. Uh, In the most recent Federal Reserve report, credit card borrowing spiked at a record. That shows you that people are having trouble keeping up with inflation. Mm -hmm. They've spent down their savings by at least a trillion dollars, the money they socked away during the pandemic. They're putting money on their credit cards. And I saw numbers just this week, Dagan, that a majority, a clear majority of Americans are now living paycheck to paycheck. I think it was close to two-thirds is what I saw in the one survey. That is obviously harrowing. For a lot of people. But you said the White House isn't doing anything to improve the situation. Now, no. You must have missed the president's speech, Dagan. He said that he has a plan, and it's really the Republicans' fault and everyone else's fault that this is a problem. But he's got a plan, and really his policies are helping, not hurting. That's what he told us. Well, he's lying. And if he's lying, he maybe he doesn't know it. I, just, I will never get over him standing up there. And this wasn't uh, yesterday. It was Tuesday. Again, they were trying to get out in front of this inflation report. Now, I I was right that the core core number um, month over month was double in April than it was in uh, the month of March. He stood up there and said, I know you're frustrated. I can taste it. I can taste it. What does that mean? That, and it, again, it, it, he, he's not president in empathy. Remember, that's how the, um, the Democrats sold this person to the American people. Mm-hmm. And he's not even president apathy. He's like president cruelty and callousness. How else do you explain the formula shortage that's going on in this country? And that, that now, that today, he's on a phone call with the, the providers Close and with to the retailers press, by the way. today. Close to press. This has been the formula short because of all the supply chain problems. And by the way, you exacerbate supply chain problems by juice and demand, which the 
fiscal spending did and the Federal Reserve, the monetary stimulus, but the fiscal stimulus, you juice demand and you but then you impose regulations on businesses and you do everything to hurt the supply side. They didn't help the supply side and juice demand. So all of this is on their head and shoulders. But the formula problem has been going on months and months and months before Abbott Labs had to close that one plant in Michigan. That was in February. And that, of course, exacerbated the problem, and the shortages were piling up week after week after week. Where were Biden and company? Where were they? The FDA has the ability to deal with this. The Commerce Department has the ability to deal with this. They've done nothing except talk and well, and talk some more, yeah. and then lie. I don't mean to get angry, but they, because there are a lot of things that the FDA could do to relieve regulations, to allow the import of formula, alleviate the White House could alleviate the tariffs on imported formula. Their regulations on how long a retailer has to wait to sell new formula. There are a whole host of things that they could be doing. Instead, they're just talking about it and today having a meeting when it was clear. Not just months. It was clear last year that this was going to be a problem. And the shortages every week were going up. One week it was 30 percent. One week it was 40 percent. And that was last month. They Dagan, didn't do anything. Dagan, just a little while ago here during our conversation, you were running through the gas prices and how the average price per gallon hit a new high. Right. And, I mean – we see it whenever you drive anywhere. You see the numbers at every gas station. It's just astronomical numbers. Let me juxtapose that reality that people are seeing every single day with this story in the Washington Post today, with the Post calling it, quote, a victory for climate activists. The Interior Department, the Biden administration, confirmed Wednesday that it will not hold three oil and gas lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico and off the coast of Alaska that had been scheduled to take place taking millions of acres off the auction block. The decision which comes as U.S. gas prices have reached record highs effectively ends the possibility of the federal government holding a lease sale in coastal waters this year. The Biden administration is poised to let the nationwide offshore drilling program also expire next month without a new plan in place. So, I mean, their timing is exquisite, Dagan. <laughs> uh, you know, I know the Post is correct in calling this a victory for climate activists, uh, that's about it, though. The American people are in deep pain, and it's just it frustrates me because the White House, in their talking points, they have these cherry-picked data points where they're like, oh, we're better on drilling and you know, domestic energy production than Trump was in this specific way, and the oil companies are sitting on a bunch of land that they're not using because they're lazy and greedy or whatever. They're trying to make it seem like they're very pro-domestic production, but that's not true. They really aren't. No. They want to eliminate fossil fuels. They've said so. In the middle of this pain, they're doing this. Their ideology trumps everything else. And, I mean, at some point, voters are going to have to wake up to this. Yes? They've already woken up to it. Last year, the Biden administration did not sign off on one new federal land lease for um, oil exploration. That was the first time um, in any one year in decades that a president hasn't done that. And they uh, repeated, they went to court 
uh, because they um, tried they tried to stop new um, la- they wanted to stop n- any new leases on federal land and water and lost and then begrudgingly um, I think there was one uh, lease um, sale like at the end of last year maybe that was um, out in the Gulf but they want the I will quote Katie Pavlich and others. The pain is the point. They want energy prices to be this high, so it forces you to drive an electric vehicle. I mean, you've heard – I have it in front of me. Give me two seconds. I'll pull it up. This is what Brian Deese, the economic advisor, said. We're going to take fossil fuel to zero. That's the goal. Biden Energy Secretary Jen Granholm not long ago said about rising gas prices, we're working through an energy transition. The reality is we have to take some time to get off of oil and gas. This is the transition. So they want you to suffer. Despite the fact that oil and natural gas in this country are plentiful, and it makes us prosperous, and it makes us more powerful on the world stage, because tyrants that want to wipe us off the map, their central source of revenue yep. is oil and natural gas. And by the way, we've like reduced, Vladimir Putin. We've reduced emissions, right? While doing all of this, yeah, we reduced we emissions. While a lot of countries were signing on to, you know, Paris Accords, under, they weren't. Under Trump, under Trump, with the, per, our per capita emissions were the lowest that they've been since 1950. And I'll add this. I said this on Twitter. Not that Twitter means anything, but <laughs> Biden, as usual, serves up a warmed-over garbage casserole of inflation-fighting fallacies, green energy goofery, and castig- castigation of oil companies for unused federal leases. The unused federal lease – by the way, if you get a federal lease and don't use it, you have to use it or lose it. And there are all these other things that go into proving leases. And then you have to build infrastructure like pipelines and roads. If the lease is viable, if the well is viable to extract and transport said oil, yeah, or or and, and so that this garbage that they're spewing about the unused leases, that was from like 2008. That's how it it goes back at least that far. No, it's a talking That's point nonsense. that I think like it just doesn't resonate with people. It doesn't make sense, and fundamentally, I think. Dagan, when you look at the White House and the way that they communicate about this, and I remember this from the Obama years, too, when Republicans would say, let's do this. Let's greenlight that pipeline. Let's approve this lease. Let's you know fill in the blank. The response is always, well, that wouldn't immediately solve the problem. That would, you know, create a backlog that eventually, you know, maybe months or years from now, it, it might do something. But right now, it won't solve the problem. It's not an immediate solution at all. The problem is, if that's the line that they use to say no to everything constantly, then when you're in a moment like we are right now, you could go back and point to their previous refusals to do stuff and say, okay, well, those things could be online at this point. And and so it's like it's so disingenuous to say, oh, it's not an immediate solution. They use that as an excuse to shut this stuff down, and they've been doing it for years. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes in in terms of trying to discourage uh, financing for oil and gas projects in the United States, like getting on the horn with the people who work at the big investment banks or who are in the finance business and really trying to discourage any kind of lending or financing that it – it's frowned upon. A lot of that goes on behind the scenes. 
and so you don't see it. Luckily, the energy companies are speaking out. Oh, in her briefing, uh, Jen Psaki just said that the administration had been working on the formula problem for months. Oh, sure. Sure oh, they, they, They've done a great oh, job. Have they been working my- on it for months? And now we've got empty store shelves. That seems like a self-indictment there we're, uh, from Jen Psaki. Right. We're working, uh, the administration, we're working urgently to ensure that infant formula is safe and available for families across the country. Uh, um, oh, and she also called on the Federal Trade Commission to crack down on price gouging. Uh, so blame the, the reta- blame the, blame the retailers. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not in favor of price gouging, but I'll tell you this. Part of what starts happening, and there, beca- there becomes a understandable panic among parents and so you start to get hoarding yeah well we saw we've seen this before right this is this is a phenomenon that happens i remember you know with masks for example dagan we're up on a break we got to run before i go though i just want to say good luck tonight on the game show the quiz show with tucker carlson you're up against bill hemmer and he's he's on this show with us later in the program so we'll have both very nervous going head to head on tucker tonight best of luck and godspeed dagan mcdowell like, likewise. Thank you, Guy. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon, and we'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we were just talking about the Biden administration and their policies and the president's statements. He had that speech on Tuesday, and he said he's got a plan. He's executing it. All the problems are someone else's fault. And when he was pressed, do you take any responsibility for the inflation problem? Which even Democratic economists say he should because of his agenda that has contributed to the problem. Biden denied it, saying, in fact, the opposite. His policies are helping. They're not hurting. Well, how do voters feel about that? Brand new poll from Monmouth out an hour ago. Do you approve or disapprove of the job President Biden is doing as president? 38% approve. 57% disapprove. The guy's almost 20 points underwater overall. 38 approve, 57 disapprove. His approval rating among independents is 32%. About one out of three political independents like what this guy's doing as president. The Republicans are up four points on the generic congressional ballot, similar to the Fox News poll, which has Republicans up seven. CNN poll has Republicans up seven. This one has GOP GOP up four. And if you get into the issues, inflation, the economy, his approval is even uglier. He can keep talking. It's not working. Another hour coming up. On The Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour underway here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. And on demand for free around the clock on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That's the website, everything right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GuyBensonShow. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Fox News Channel, part of the crew. Looking forward to that. Hope to see you there. You can set your DVR or tune in. Again, that's 11 Eastern. Fox News alert as we get rolling here. Another down day on Wall Street. The Dow closing in the red, down 103 points to 31,730. With us now is Dana Perino, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, also co-host of The Five, best-selling author of multiple books. Most recently, Everything Will Be Okay, now available in paperback. Dana, great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to see you in person this week. It was on the set of America's Newsroom, and we have Bill Hemmer later on this same show. So we have, oh my gosh. We have the whole America's Newsroom crew right here. Uh, I don't think that's ever happened before, so I'm pretty stoked about it. I do have to ask you, how was the big birthday that you just had? Belatedly, happy birthday to you. You have a, almost the same birthday as my mother, and I know it was a big one. Very exciting. How was it? It was really terrific. I'm, I'm not afraid to say on your show, um, even though it feels weird, I, I, there's no hiding anymore with the Internet. Uh, I turned 50, and I would say that the entire year in the lead-up to it, it was like on my mind. Um, because, you know, like when you're 9 and you're going to be 10, it's like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and turning 30 is a big deal. 40 is a pretty big deal for people. But 50 felt altogether different for me. <laughs> Um, but I think the way that I dealt with it was to, to really reflect on my life and the things that I want to do, but truly the opportunities I've had so far, and to, to live with a huge amount of gratitude from the littlest things in my life to the really big, important things. And I find that makes me pretty resilient and happy. It's amazing how time flies. I mean, you blink, and all of a sudden you're at the next major it birthday. It scares me. I think that's the thing that if I were to say, what am I stressed about? Obviously, there's a lot of stress I could mention. Um, but it's the fact that time goes by so quickly. And I, 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 there's nothing you can do to slow it down. But there's just things you can do to try to maximize the time that you have while you're here, I yeah, guess. And enjoy it along the way. Now, I heard a rumor, I, this could be wrong. But I heard a rumor that, number one, there was something of a birthday party last night. And number two, that you were not on America's Newsroom this morning. Did you party super hard? <laughs> no. Um, actually, that party had to be moved to next Thursday, just as a scheduling mess up. Um, so, uh, no, I, I, uh, <laughs> that, wasn't the, that wasn't the situation at all. And besides, I found that as I got older, I can't party at all. I, it takes me too long to recover. I mean, that— I think back to being like 22 and what you could get away with and what you could do and what your body could handle. And then even now in my mid thirties, it's like, nope, no, sir, no more. And I will just say before we move on from your birthday, I cannot believe that you're 50. Uh, you just, you look <laughs> but fantastic. You, but if you think about it. Think how long you've known me. I know that's a crazy thing. I was an intern at the white house when I was scared yeah. of you when you were press secretary, you, you were in a very big job at a very young age. I'm like doing the math now. That's very impressive well, unto itself. I was in my itself. mid-30s. Yeah, I was in my mid-30s. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of press secretaries, uh, Jen Psaki is done after tomorrow. She's moving on. She'll be a competitor. We wish her well. And there's uh, a new press secretary who will be behind the podium, Ms. Jean-Pierre. Uh, I have some issues with some of the stuff that she's said and tweeted. She's called our network racist. She called APAC racist. Yeah. 
She's spread yep. some election conspiracy theories about the Georgia election in 2018, about the presidential election in 2016. Uh, how much should someone who's coming in to speak on someone else's behalf, how much should they be sort of held to account for what they've said in the past? How much of that is newsworthy or is she just a vessel for someone else's words? And so it maybe doesn't matter as much the stuff that she has or has not said in her own life. It's a great question. And Guy, you know, I didn't even have Twitter or Facebook in January of 2009 when I left the White House. And had I had Twitter or Facebook leading up to that, one, I would have had to own everything I had said before. Uh, Two, I still think I could have done a good job. But three, I would have to accept the fact that people might be skeptical of me. Is there and go ahead. So I think that in a way, one of the things that she could do is to say that on her first day at the podium to say, I am honored to be here. I had a different job before I came to the White House. My job was to be a commentator. And I love that job, but I love this job as much and I take it very seriously. I am a press secretary for all Americans not just Democratic Americans. And so I might have to earn your trust. I intend to earn your trust. And you'll just have to to go with me here. I'm not asking for a blank slate. I said what I said. I know I did. But from here on out, I hope that you can see me as a press secretary for all people. And I think that that guy might be the best way to try to deal with it. Do you think it's fair game for reporters to ask, like, hey, uh, you know, Peter Ducey could raise his hand and say, hey, do you think I'm a racist because I work at Fox News? Do you do you view our entire network as racist? Because that's what you said on MSNBC not that long ago. Or, you know, Madam, Madam Press fair. Secretary, did you do you still believe that the 2016 election was stolen from Hillary Clinton? Do you still believe that Stacey Abrams had an election stolen from her? Like, is that a fair thing to ask a press secretary or is that sort of beyond the scope? Because you're really covering the president in the White House. Well, uh, I've been in the briefing room. Everything's on the table. Yeah. And she can bristle at it, but she, and she needs to have a way to deal with it. Like, if she were to do something like I just laid out, she could then refer to, back to that, say, Peter, as I said, I had a different job before. My job now is to speak on behalf of the President of the United States. I'm happy to answer any of those questions. I'm not saying that I'm deleting those tweets. They exist. And they are what they are. But my job now is to be here. And do you have another question? Aside from this narrow issue about her statements from the past that I think are objectionable, just broadening it out to the job description, the challenges that she has ahead of her. She's been the deputy. You were in that role as well. Then you move into, you know, prime time where you are the person. It's a different job. There's a lot more scrutiny. There's probably a lot more accountability, I would imagine, than being someone who occasionally briefs as opposed to being like, you know, the main event. Mm-hmm. What, you know, setting aside any policy differences, what are your major pieces of advice to Corrine Jean-Pierre as she embarks on this new part of her career in a very demanding and challenging job that you, of course, did? Well, I think I have a feeling that she probably has a pretty good working relationship with everybody in the White House right now. And I think that includes the White House press corps. One thing I've heard that is um, a real positive for them is that they run the operation of the press office very well. 
Um, I don't know if everybody would agree with that, but that's just what I've heard, and that is certainly an important part of the job. And that includes, like, making sure the press gets where they need to be in order to be uh, at the press conference when the president's going to take questions from this or that. So there's the logistics of it. Then there's making sure that everybody in the White House knows that you're an honest broker because you want everyone to be fulsome with you about opportunities, challenges, and crises that are on on the horizon. Um, it really means you have to have excellent deputies that are going to have their finger on everything. For example, I cannot believe that the White House is so late to dealing with this baby formula issue. Mm -hmm. It is not a new issue. It started in January, and now we're at crisis levels. I mean, who is not, who is not telling them that they better get on top of things? I don't understand that. Well, they claim today, and Saki said today, well, we have been on it for months. And I feel like you're just digging your own grave here. If you're saying we've been aware, we've been on it for months, and these are the results, I mean, what does that say to the American people? Mm-hmm. I don't – yeah, I, I, I think that they've got a real problem there. Um, and I know – it'll be interesting to see how she handles how the left wants to pull the president even further to the left. And based on – the things that we've read that she said in the past, you would think that, that those are her instincts as well. Yeah, she's one of them. Can she, can she overcome those instincts to protect the president and the American people to make sure that the uh, – well, I, I don't know what could prevail. Common sense, the right policies, I mean, I don't know if she will, if, if she will do that. Um, I wish her the best. Uh, America needs a good, strong press secretary, I believe, because I think that it's not just uh, – here in America that it matters, but people around the world that watch everything a press secretary says. So we need her to be strong and solid. Dana Perino, I want to ask you about this new uh, talking point catchphrase moniker that we've heard now from Biden repeatedly and others around him, ultra MAGA. I don't know who came up with this, where they, you know, uh, I guess. I hate it so much. Focus grouped it or something, ultra MAGA. In what world do they think this is actually useful or effective? I, and I, we actually mentioned this during a commercial break on TV yesterday. They ran this playbook against Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. Mm-hmm. They called him Mr. MAGA, Trump with a vest on, abortion, abortion, abortion. That was their campaign. They lost that campaign in a state Biden won by 10. They're like, hey, you know what? Let's do it nationally. Your thoughts on that? We have about 30 seconds, Dana. I think that it is a terrible phrase. I think it is going to backfire, partly because I think people who are considering themselves MAGA, they'll just wear it as a badge of honor. Right. Like, yeah, I'm I'm ultra MAGA. You bet. And they'll make hats and everything, and they'll, somebody will make a lot of money. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely true. And other voters who aren't ultra MAGA or terribly MAGA will say, that's pretty lame. You're in charge. Uh, and they're going to go out and they're going to vote. And based on the polling that we just talked about last hour, it's not looking good for the incumbent party, and it shouldn't, in my view. Dana Perino, our friend and colleague here at Fox News. Thank you, Dana. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. And happy birthday. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. A couple notes here that I want to address on abortion and the national debate on that issue. We will get into some more of it with Senator Blackburn coming up in the next segment. I saw this tweet from the Washington Post's video games correspondent. That's a thing, apparently. 
His Twitter bio says he is the video games reporter for the Washington Post. So, of course, he needs to figure out a way to work abortion into his beat. So he reached out. He's very proud of this. And he linked to the story that he wrote for the Post about this. He reached out to more than 20 major video game companies to ask whether they intend to speak up in favor of reproductive rights or provide monetary aid to employees. Just a few said yes, he says, obviously very concerned. Most said nothing at all. Maybe because they're video games companies. They don't have to weigh in on abortion just because you want them to. Now, let me be clear about this. This is not journalism. This is activism. He's calling up like an activist to lobby. That's what this is, lobby. It's a lobbying effort to get the companies within his little realm of his beat to try to weigh in on one side of this issue, right? It wasn't like I asked them for comment on abortion or Roe versus Wade or the Supreme Court. And if some company came back and said, we're actually pro-life, that was not really an option on the menu. This was specifically a request for them to, quote, speak up in favor of reproductive rights. There was one choice for them to make, and it was to be on that side, his side, the newsroom side, the Washington Post side. They even adopt the activist language of the abortion lobby, reproductive rights. They're not even trying to use neutral language at all. They're not asking for a position one way or another. They are agitating for companies to take one position that they have pre-scripted for them, and if they don't, then it's a problem. You better speak up in favor of reproductive rights. You better offer money to your employees to go and pay for an abortion if they want one, or we're going to write you up as part of the problem in the Washington Post. So that's what Nathan Grayson, journalist extraordinaire, spent his last few days apparently doing. Activism masquerading as journalism on behalf of the abortion lobby. Again, that's the video games correspondent. This is the game that they play. We see it with Disney in Florida. Every time an issue crops up, we talked about Georgia yesterday, Delta Airlines, Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, on the voting rights, quote-unquote, bill. They have one correct position on their side. You adhere to it, you do the activism with them, or you're in trouble. And the pressure ratchets up. That's what they do. This is how they operate. The press very often is on their side, the left-wing activists. It's sort of indistinguishable. It's not even a blurred line. There is no line, especially when it comes to abortion. Meanwhile, I saw this. And I thought this was quite interesting. In Congress, there's a group that calls themselves the Pro-Choice Caucus. Of course, on the issue of abortion. Let me repeat, the name of their own caucus is the Pro-Choice Caucus. They put out a messaging document to their colleagues about what words to say and not say when discussing abortion in public. And they have a list of things that are harmful, harmful language, that's what they say, and then helpful language. Do you want to know the very first example that they give of harmful language? Using the word choice. That is harmful language. Instead, they say the helpful language is decision. I feel like the pro-choice caucus saying that choice is a harmful word. They might need to change the name of the caucus, quite frankly. They should just call themselves 
the pro-abortion caucus. Let's be a little bit more truthful in the advertising here. They're not pro-choice. They are pro-abortion. Many Americans are pro-choice and are moderate. You've got pro-lifers who are also moderate, people trying to figure out where the line should be drawn and what that looks like. If you are someone who is this fanatical about the issue, you're not pro-choice. You're pro-abortion. And you are telling on yourself when you say that choice unto itself is a harmful word in this context. They also say the word rare is harmful when you're discussing abortion policy. So is the goal of reducing abortions. That's also harmful language, according to the pro-choice caucus. They're not even trying to pretend anymore. Bill Clinton used to talk about safe, legal, and rare Let's work together to reduce abortions without criminalizing it. That's the old language of the Democratic Party. Now you've got the pro-choice caucus saying choice is not aggressive enough. It's harmful. Don't use that word. And we should not even talk about reducing abortions or making them rare. They instead should be accessible is the word that they say. Again, they're not pro-choice by their own definitions here. They are pro-abortion and they should call themselves that. When we come back, U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn is here talking about the agitation at Supreme Court justices' homes, the vote in the Senate yesterday, speaking of pro-abortion, and much more. Senator Blackburn on the other side of this break on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is free every single day on demand. Thanks for being here. Joining us now is U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee. She serves on multiple influential committees in the Senate. She authored the book, The Mind of a Conservative Woman, and has a podcast called Freedom Rings. And Senator, it's great to have you back here. It is so good to join you. Thank you so much. Senator, I am traveling next week for a few nights, and I'll give you one guess what state I'm heading to. (laughs) Tennessee (laughs) to Nashville. (laughs) Cannot wait. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I believe I heard a rumor that you and I might be talking to each other at that event. Did you hear the same rumor? I have heard that same rumor. Yes, indeed. Excellent. And I think that's a great thing. Looking forward to that. We had a fun conversation off the air in Florida a few months ago. We'll reprise the whole show. We should do a road show together. And at this time, <laughs> it's sort of home cooking for you. Looking forward to being back in the volunteer state, especially in Nashville. Such a fun town. Yeah. Senator, I want to talk to you first about this whole saga right now involving the Supreme Court and setting aside the jurisprudence, setting aside the issue of abortion just for a moment, the agitation outside the homes of these justices, the doxing of their home address. It seems like the Democrats in the Senate, their leadership are kind of split. They're splintered on this question. Chuck Schumer said yesterday that he has no problem with it. He's comfortable with it. As long as people don't get physically violent, it doesn't bother him that the justices are being doxxed and harassed and their families harassed at their private residences. Dick Durbin, his lieutenant in the Senate from Illinois, he said it's reprehensible and should never happen. I don't know if those two guys ever talked to each other, but it seems like it should be a pretty bright line that everyone in public life should be able to agree on. 
you should not go to someone's house to intimidate them. Yes? I mean, that seems like 101 sort of republic-saving stuff. Yes, you're correct. And it is astounding that the Democrats continue to uh, encourage people to go do this. Indeed, Jen Psaki from the podium at the White House this week was encouraging people to go out there and protest at these homes, these private residences. And they'll get right up on the edge of the property And they're doing it as a form of intimidation, which is not only wrong, it is a crime. It is 18 U.S.C. 1507. This is a crime. All of these people should be booked for intimidation of a federal judge, and they should they should be hauled down to city hall and moved out of these communities. The thing is, not only does it affect the the justice in their family, but everybody that lives in that neighborhood, kids can't go ride a bike, they can't walk to a friend's house. Right, they've got people have trouble getting to their home. There are people in the streets that are agitated, that are holding these signs and shouting, and they are doing this 24 hours a day. I saw some of the clips. There are people screaming the F word into megaphones, right, into bullhorns in these neighborhoods. I know that Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, some of the justices live in Virginia. He is taking action. You mentioned that this is a crime. Here's the thing, Senator. If the White House believes that it is acceptable— to publish the home address, the street address of a federal judge, to go agitate outside the house of that judge, to try to intimidate that person to change their ruling on something. If the White House believes that that is appropriate or defensible, I wonder if the president will come out explicitly in favor of repealing the law that you just cited. If this is a legitimate form of protest— then it shouldn't be illegal, and I would like to see the president leading the charge. I feel like he might not do that because I think there might be some unintended consequences if we go down this road. I would think there that the president would have a very difficult time doing that, but here's the deal. They have gone through this process since they uh, were running for president and trying to win that election. And what are they saying, Guy? The whole time they've been talking about laws that they were going to ignore and laws that they were going to enforce. Look at the southern border. Look at what is happening there, Uh, the lack of uh, resources that they're providing for our Border Patrol, how our Border Patrol continues to say if they would enforce the law, if they would continue with Title 42, if they would continue with Remain in Mexico, all of these things would be helpful to keeping drug dealers, fentanyl dealers, human traffickers, sex traffickers out of our country, if they would enforce immigration law, if people who had overstayed their visa would be deported. That would be a good thing. So they're trying to play pick and choose on what to and what not to 
and force. Yes. And this is another good example of this. They're willing to put the safety and security of justices and their neighbors at risk in order to make a point that they want to make. And what they're saying is actually a falsehood. They're leading people to believe that overturning Roe v. Wade would ban abortion in the U.S. That is incorrect. What it would do is to say on the issue of abortion, it is returned to the separate and various states for the purpose of establishing regulations and restrictions on the practice of abortion. That's what this says. It goes back to the states. And the states would address it differently. Yes, and they already have. There are different laws on the books. We know that some of the restrictions being discussed, six weeks, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, actually have pretty broad public support. They never talk about that. But there was a vote that you all held in the Senate just yesterday where the Democrats called it a codification of Roe. It was not that. It was an expansion, a radical expansion of abortion for all nine months to the moment of birth for any reason whatsoever, paid for by tax dollars. That door gets flung wide open. A destruction of conscious rights for health care providers. Every single restriction at the state level, including widely, massively favored restrictions, all would be overturned by this federal edict that they tried to pass. It failed, but 49 Senate Democrats voted to advance that bill yesterday, and then they turn around and call someone like you, Senator Blackburn, an extremist on this issue. It's pretty breathtaking. That's, that's right. Their bill that they did yesterday, and you're right, it was not codifying Roe. It was a massive overreach of making every state a state that would allow late-term abortion, that would do away with parental consent, it would do away with informed consent, it would allow tele-abortions where you could call the doctor, uh, get the medication sent to you. Uh, it, it is the most radical thing of all. And you know, Guy, most people in this country, about 80% of the people in America oppose late-term abortion. They do not support that at all. They don't support taxpayer funding of abortion. But all of that would have been allowed under the bill that the Democrats pushed forward yesterday saying it was simply a bill that would codify Roe v. Wade. Yeah, and it blows me away that you have some members of the Senate, including Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, who calls himself a pro-life Democrat, and then he votes with his party, everyone except Joe Manchin. On this, I mean, you cannot, this is not even a pro-choice bill. This goes beyond that, and it is the farthest thing from a pro-life bill that I can think of, and it actually sickens me. Even if you're pro-life or pro-choice out there, it sickens me that that is something this radical is the effective stance now, the official stance of the Democratic Party. It's kind of like the equivalent if the Republicans introduced a bill that would ban all abortion for every reason, including if the life of the mother was at stake. That would be the Republican bill. I think it might have been covered a little bit differently in the press than it has been for the Democrats, where a lot of news organizations just sort of went with their talking points saying, oh, this is just a bill to codify Roe, knowing that that is 
something that will poll better than what is actually in the legislation that almost every last one of them supported, including every vulnerable Democrat incumbent who's up in 2022. That's how out there this bill was. Fortunately, it failed, but it barely failed, right? It was it was 49-51. Right. You're right about that. And what the Democrats are trying to do is push this pro-abortion, not pro-choice, but a pro-abortion agenda. And as people have heard about this, the overturning Roe v. Wade, we would get phone calls and people would say, I think we should have Roe v. Wade. And I'm, I don't think that there should be a ban on abortion in the country. And when we explain to them that this would not ban abortion, that this would put the regulations back in their state so that the people of their state could make these decisions – I, I would venture to say probably 90, 95 percent of the people we talk to go, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and that's by I design. this was going to ban abortion. Yeah, that's... And this just shows you how the media has cozied up to the Democrats. And just like you said, they didn't report the facts on this. They simply uh, uttered the talking point. Yeah, I mean, a lot of journalists, unfortunately, on this issue in particular – are activists, not journalists. Yes. I want to play you a couple sound bites. I know it's a complicated issue and people have varying views on abortion. Listening to some people in politics talking about this question in the last couple of days has been somewhat eye-opening. You had Janet Yellen, who is the Treasury Secretary under President Biden. She was sort of under questioning from senators talking about abortion, legalized abortion as something that's good for the economy. And she cast it in racial framing as well. Your colleague, Tim Scott, who we had on this show yesterday from South Carolina, he took exception to it. Here's cut 23. Roe v. Wade and access to reproductive health care, including abortion, helped lead to increased labor force participation. Just from a clarity's sake. Did you say that ending the life of a child is good for the labor force participation rate? Uh, it means the children will grow up in poverty yeah. and do, do worse themselves. Thank and you. Let me, let me is, just explain my time harsh. on the topic. This is I, the truth. I'll just simply say that as a guy raised by a black woman in abject poverty, I'm thankful to be here. Yeah, he's glad to be alive. And she was sort of trying to frame the abortion question and shoehorn it into sort of economic dollars and cents, which I think is kind of a, a ghoulish way to look at it. And she was talking about – she gave an example in the testimony of, you know, a mother of color who might not have the ability to pay for the child at the moment, and would that person be better off? And obviously uh, Senator Scott took exception to that, uh, the implication that perhaps he would have been better off not being alive, having being killed in the womb, something that he very much adamantly and understandably disagrees with. Then a member of the House, Katie Porter, this is a House Democrat, she was asked about abortion and inflation, and she said actually the two issues coexist in a certain way. Listen to Cut 18. I don't think they compare. I think they actually reinforce each other. So the fact that 
things like inflation can happen and it be, can become more expensive to feed your kids and to fuel your car um, is exactly why people need to be able to be in charge of how many mouths they're going to have to feed. So I think the fact that we're seeing this jump in expenses, um, that we're seeing people having to pay more in the grocery store, pay more at the pump, pay more for housing is a reason that people are saying, I need to be able to make my own decisions about when and if to start a family. So I don't think we're going to see them. I don't think it's like about comparing them or contrasting them. I think they reinforce for people just how big of a responsibility it is to take care of a family. So basically the cost cutting measure in this period of acute inflation that she's recommending here is not cutting coupons or belt tightening or certainly the Democrats doing something to stop inflation and not keep spending like drunken sailors. Her idea here is a way that a family can cut back on expenses is through abortion. So she feels like these issues sort of dovetail with each other. Uh, This is certainly a, a very interesting way, Senator, to talk about this very difficult moral question involving humanity and human life. It seems kind of dark to me. Well, it it does. It is very sad. It is callous. Uh, There's a sickening tone to this that they're putting a dollar price on a a child in that regard. Uh, I would hope that their hearts would change and they would begin to value life and would see every single life as a gift from God. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican of Tennessee. Her book is The Mind of a Conservative Woman. Her podcast is called Freedom Rings, and I'll be seeing her, God willing, in Tennessee next week. Senator, always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Good talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll step aside on The Guy Benson Show. Back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I believe in democracy, and I don't believe that the minority should have the ability to block things that the majority want to do. That's not in the Constitution. Back on The Guy Benson Show, that was Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts bemoaning the outcome yesterday in the Senate that we told you about, the defeat on a cloture vote of this radical abortion law that they tried to pass. And almost every single Democrat, except for Joe Manchin, the rest of them, all voted in favor of this thing. As extreme as it gets, short of compulsory abortion, it's as extreme as it gets. And Warren says she doesn't believe that the minority should have the ability to block things that the majority want to do. Now, the problem with that is the math. I know math isn't really her thing, but the majority in the vote was against the law that she voted for. Newsflash. A little math update for Senator Warren. 51 senators is a majority. 49, her position, is the minority. So I don't know if she was aware of that. Maybe she believes that the majority of the American people are with them, except that's not true. We've seen the polling on it, especially for late-term abortion. As Senator Blackburn was just saying, that's an 80-20 issue in the opposite direction against Senator Warren's position. And by the way, if the Republicans regain control of Congress, let's say they want to pass, for example, a 20-week federal abortion ban, which is what they've tried to do in the past. It's gotten majority support in the Senate, but not 60 votes because people like Elizabeth Warren filibustered that bill. And I suspect she would like to filibuster that bill again in the future. So she's full of it. It's a dishonest point, and she gets the details wrong. 
The legislation also, by the way, does not codify Roe versus Wade, as we've said many times. It expands it. Maisie Hirono, who is perhaps the most dim-witted member of the U.S. Senate, she was asked about that on CNN, and she said, well, let's not get into the weeds about the details of what they just voted for. And to his credit, the anchor came back and said, well, it's not getting into the weeds when I ask you what's actually in legislation that you just voted for, and you're attacking the other side not for voting for it. The weeds are the problem. The bill is a monstrosity. They don't want to talk about that. So they want to rage against a filibuster, which wasn't even the issue here, and they want to pretend that the details are irrelevant, almost as if they want to hide the actual details from the American people. I wonder why that is. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Bill Hemmer joins me in studio straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour time on The Guy Benson Show from New York today. Back in D.C. tomorrow, thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time and around the clock on demand, free of charge at GuyBensonShow.com and that podcast, also FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. So excited for our Memorial Day weekend barbecue featuring the Long Drink, which is expanding rapidly across the country. To find out where it's sold near you, simply log on, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Joining me now here in studio in New York is Bill Hammer, co-host hey of America's Newsroom, mm-hmm. 9 to 11, Monday through Friday, Fox News Channel. His podcast is Hammer Time, foxnewspodcast.com. Your co-host is Dana Perino, yeah. who was on this program earlier today, mm. and we talked a bit about a big milestone that you just hit, a big, big birthday. <laughs> I heard rumors of a party. I guess yeah. you were probably invited. I, I was given an invitation, uh-huh. and hopefully the, we'll, we'll make that happen sometime soon. Got it. I don't know how many details she gave, but how are you feeling? In general? Yeah. I just, sound like you got a bad throat or something. I, you know, I feel great. Uh-huh. I just have a little bit of a scratchy throat because I just screamed too much at Yankee Stadium the other I night. I see. Okay. What happened there? Well, as we talked about offset there the other go. day, big walk-off home run by Aaron Judge, bottom of the ninth. We played the clip from the Yes Network on the show yesterday. Just an absolute thriller. And I know you were at an event that night for a very good cause yes. to raise some money, but I had extended an invite. Yes, and you, you did. You missed a, as a sports guy, I'm just telling you, you missed one hell of a finish. I, I know I did when I woke up and I heard about it. I was like, well, guy saw a pretty good game. <laughs> I did. And you probably lost your voice along the way. Just a little bit. I, yeah. I mean, it's still look, three hours every day is a lot of talking. I hear I you. Have to, I have to protect the pipes. Yeah, a bit. I got I, you. And I have gut felt tonight. Uh-huh. I have to be able to talk. I got you. Hot tea. You know, as for my co anchor there, Dana, I mean, it was a big break. Birthday and it just like came and went like water on a beach for her. She, she's just an it was ageless no, wonder. This is no big deal. I mean, she turned like twenty eight. <laughs> she she could pass for my age. I really believe yes. that, yeah. and that is just. I mean, 
standing ovation. Whatever she's got right going on. on like, uh, I'm good guessing, for her. What, what are you, 37? 37. Okay, yeah. I was going to put you at 35. Well, thank you, Bill. Absolutely. Checks in the mail. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about a few different things here. Let's, yes, since fire we're, away. Since we're kind of on mm-hmm. light topics, okay. let's start here. You want a free wheel for a little bit here? I do. Okay. Because I, I have some curiosities about you, and there's a news hook for it. This is from the New York Times headline Farewell to the iPod. After nearly 22 years, Apple is discontinuing production of those devices that mm-hmm. changed how we all consume music. I had one iPod ever. It was the OG, big, clunky one. Yeah. I have the docking station into a Bose speaker yeah. that I used for years, an amazing Christmas gift from my dad years ago. I have almost all of my favorite music for maybe 20 years on that thing, and now they're gone. It was a staple of my high school and college experience. Do you still have it? It is definitely floating around the house. We have it somewhere for sure. Wow. I should have brought it in. It it weighs like three pounds. I know. It's a crown jewel. I have mine also. The original one. It was the OG. Um, I... Honestly, I think it was the second generation. Okay, I think it came out, and then the next well, one it did came get out better. And people, it got better, and people were using it. You know, word of mouth traveled quickly. I, I rely a lot on word of mouth for people to tell me whether or not they enjoy or like the product. I've got mine, guy. I agree with you a thousand percent. I've I the music that's on there. I I think it held a thousand songs, <laughs> but I think it holds five thousand songs. And if I, I I honestly don't know what the number is. I can put that iPod on shuffle, uh-huh. put it on the house music, and be fully satisfied for hours and, and hours because every freaking song that comes on, I'd love. And it was such an innovation because I'm just sort of aging myself here, but I remember being really impressed as a kid with people who had the six CD changer mm-hmm. in their car. Yeah. <laughs> and then if you want to bring something running for a jog or something, you needed to have like a disc man and the thing would skip we talked about that recently on the show before that it was cassette tapes had that had disc man and people would make did you were you a mixtape guy back in the day not so much but i did Did have people make mixtapes for you i Uh, bet you they did if i just just a guess i had i had one of the most rare audio devices ever okay i had a panasonic receiver so you could listen AM, FM radio. Okay. You could play a cassette. You could hook up components to it. You could hook up a stereo to it, a cassette player to it. It had a built-in 8-track. 8-track. Upon which you could record oh. on an 8-track. So that's as close as I ever got to a mixtape. I have never seen one of its capacity in my life other than the one I own. That is, and I've it's never in my attic. Of, of course. It's See, in my attic. So you could take a blank 8-track tape. What does an 8-track even look like? Um, you don't know? bigger than a cassette? You don't know? No, that was before me. You know what 8-track player? I- I've heard of it. Wow. I've never seen I- one. I do know what a rotary phone is. I do. Um, if you were to take <laughs> our two iPods okay. and stack them on top of each other, that would be roughly the size of an 8-track tape. Okay. And what it did is that it would you insert it, and you it has different channels, as I recall. And I think there were four. Huh. I, I do, I'm sure somebody's listening and saying Hammer's wrong about this. Could there this. have been eight? Uh, Just I, don't, I don't think so. I understand what you're saying. I, t- I totally hear the logic of that, but I think it was four. Okay. So you could, have, you could have 20 songs in an album, let's say, and you could have five on the first track, five on the second track, five on the third track, and five on the fourth track. Roughly speaking. Would you then flip it? You'd get another no, four? No, there's no flipping. So where it's does just, the eight even it, come it's from? It's advanced. I don't know. Huh. 
I think it has to do with the recording studios where you could take eight different sources of sound, be it voice or instrument, and run them into a single recorder upon which you could craft your own song. So you could lay your voice down on one track. You could lay a different voice down on number two. You could lay down a piano on number three. You could put a guitar on number four, a bass guitar on number five, and that's how you produce the the song of Very innovative stuff at the time, for sure. We're going to get fact-checked by some audio-visual geeks. I'm telling you that I own this to this day. I haven't plugged it in years. Here is my drag on the original OG iPod. Okay. On the back, I think it says C4, I think. And I I will check this out this weekend because it's at my house outside of town. My only drag on that, as you mentioned, the docking station, Mm -hmm. it sometimes loses its charge. And so I have to put it on the docking station and fidget with it and mess with it. And sometimes I just leave it there. I turn it off or turn it on or I try and reset it. And I pray like hell. That it moves from darkness to light. Uh-huh. And once it does, I am set. And now it's no more. They are discontinuing the iPods. No, I'm keeping mine, Oh, I'm bro. definitely going to keep mine. But they're just not making new ones is the point. Correct. They're not going to come confiscate them, yeah. though. But they're not making new ones. So this is something that 10, 15 years from now, a bunch of kids will be listening to this podcast. I'm sure they will one day in the archive. Uh-huh. They're like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> What's an iPod? It'll be like my fascination with an 8-track. What are they even talking about? Now, here's the crucial question. This is all just building yeah. up to the real question here. When Bill Hammer puts the iPod on shuffle, what are we hearing? Like, oh. what, what is oh. your musical taste it's, it's, range? It's pretty obvious. It's, I have a guess. It's Miles Davis in the jazz category. Okay. It's um, reggae. Huh. Bob Marley. Whalers. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is steeped in non-traditional Bruce Springsteen. Now. Like deep tracks. Deep tracks. So oh, yeah. g- give me yeah. an example of one. I'm going down. Uh, uh, yeah, but that item. Uh, is that too mainstream? If that, if that were on there, I'd probably delete it. Okay. Yeah. So what's, what's a that, that deep was pole a, track? Uh, this is like, you know, the foreside of the river. Um, <laughs> you know, for the real ones. Yeah, it would be Nebraska in total. It would be uh, Badlands too popular. No, I'm okay with that. Okay. But let me go to Tom Jode. Um, my buddy Dan Duva is loving this. It, right it would now, by definitely the way. be the Wild the Incident in the Street Shuffle album and Fool. But like Glory and, Days is way too that's mainstream. Fine. I, I, way too I mean, mainstream. If I had the option, I'd hit Shuffle and pass over that song. Um, and I would definitely pass over my hometown. I think it's one of the worst songs ever recorded. I know I'm in the minority, <laughs> but I say that anyway. And the other thing you would find on there, mm-hmm. in um, and I contain multitudes of this genre, and that's Bob Dylan. Wow. Okay, so I will confess to you, Bill. Go. Not a Bob Dylan guy. No problem. I totally understand. I'm here to convince you. I'm here to change your mind. You you can't. You're so persuasive, Bill, but I've heard him is the problem. I'm going to do it the following way. You are either a music person or a lyrics person. And there is a percentage breakdown for every one of us as to which we prefer, music Mm. or lyrics, words or tunes, words or instruments. I am 90-10 lyrics to music. Ah. And there is no greater songwriter in the history of songs than the Beethoven of our time, Robert Zimmerman, Bob Dylan. Wow. So you are basically not going to be a catchy pop guy because a lot of those lyrics are pretty inane. Who? Who, who, Dylan? 
Oh no, yeah, no, I'm saying like pop music in general is like I- I'm okay with it. I- I've learned to un- I've learned but the to- lyrics are not very. Deep. I've learned to appreciate it. When I drive back into New York City, I'm always going to Z100. Yeah, one hundred point. And there's a reason for that is because I want to give it a half because all the songs repeat. Right, Th- this is top ten radio. Yeah. in the same way that we grew up with top ten radio. When you when you stayed up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and listened to WKRQ, one hundred one point nine. At 10 o'clock at night, and they would do the countdown of the top 10 songs. That was back before you could access this stuff, right? So you have to stay you're up. You're waiting. You're waiting, right? And it's always the same freaking lineup, yeah. the same list. It rarely changed. That is the exact same thing that Z100 oh, does. Oh, and New they've been very successful for yeah. many years. So I grew so, up listening to Z100. Uh-huh. In the Z100, New York, this, the, the jingles yeah. are great. I, I'm a radio jingle guy, too. That's a totally separate conversation. But to your point, coming back here, on lyrics versus music, and then specific instruments, this will make sense to you. I would say that I'm almost 50-50. I appreciate good lyrics. I think the catchiness of a melody or even some harmony matters more than the lyrics, but I don't like stupid lyrics. I like someone who is a lyricist and, and can put that to catchy music to make an impact on you. And my favorite instrument, if I had to pick one in this realm, is piano, and therefore, it will not surprise you at all that I have seen Billy Joel in concert five times. Because uh-huh. that guy melds, right, both sides yeah. of this. Yeah, pop. The tunes. That's right. The, Very the lyrics. Good. Very good. And the piano. Yeah. So I, I'm a Billy Joel guy. I'm a Springsteen guy to a lesser extent. Part of that is state law. I'm from New Jersey. We have to. <laughs> Part of it is I like a lot of his music. Bob Dylan, like, I just can't get into the voice and the whole thing. And I know you disagree. You're chomping at the bit. I will let you respond. A rebuttal from the pro Bob Dylan, Bill Hammer, next on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Guy Benson Show back with Bill Hammer. Before the break, I said I'm not really into Bob Dylan. Sorry, Bill. He's your favorite. I want to let you respond. I I respect... um your disagreement okay i've heard it from countless people i'm not saying you're wrong but you're not backing down i'm not for a minute that's fair you just turn on some relaxing bob dylan we we could we could we could well i find blown in the wind i don't hate i I find i would not even put that in the category i just find (laughs) deep profound talent and what he has been able to produce. I don't disagree with that. Over 60 years and nearly 50 albums. What's your favorite Dylan song? Ooh. Um, like, you know, it's your big birthday party, yeah, and yeah, someone has gotcha. surprised you. Bob Dylan is coming to your birthday party to perform yeah. one song. Um, What's he playing for you? Today? Yeah. This is the most stumped I've ever seen Bill Hammer. You know, it's a remarkable question. I don't know if I've ever been given it. I mean, there's. I would list twenty songs, but I mean, off the top of my head, I would probably say Mr. Tambourine Man, and I I would say that because of where he's taking you in that song, the lyrics, yeah, the story, fair. First concert you ever went to? Oh, easy. Fourth grade, Liberace, Music Hall, Cincinnati, Ohio. No way. Yeah, my mom and dad <laughs> took my older sister, my older brother, and me. I know the two sisters were at home. And that counts, I guess. I mean, amazing, right? Your first concert is Liberace. What concert of your own volition was there, your first? <laughs> Even better question. You <laughs> listen well. I was a freshman in high school at Riverfront Coliseum, Cincinnati, Ohio, October 3rd, I believe. Wow. Bruce Springsteen, these three. So Springsteen. First one. I was in the second row, side of the stage, second row from the top. 
guy, you would have thought I was in the front row. I was 16 years old, and um, I don't know. I was just – I was lit on fire from the moment that he jumped on stage from the very first chord that he struck on a song called Prove It All Night. Uh. And the joint went nuts. And I thought, here is a guy. I have finally seen a person in my 16 years who has the greatest job anywhere. Yeah. And he's having a blast. And still – Every time he plays. And the energy. I mean, he look, I setting aside the politics, I know there are people listening, oh, he's a liberal. Whatever, like, I don't really care. He can do whatever he wants. The energy that that guy has to this day. Yeah. He's like a senior citizen. You he's know, up there. He guy, plays he, two he has, and a half hours. He has fun. He does. Yeah. And he's a different guy in person than he is on stage. You, you know, met like, him? Well, many times. Sorry, many was an, an exaggeration. Well, I was like, several, well, excuse me. Several times. <laughs> um, but, yeah, his – his demeanor in person is very much of a 70-year-old man. And his demeanor on stage, when they plug in those guitars... He's 20 again. ...and they crank that up, that's, that's why I say music sings to the soul. Because I've seen it, and he lives it, and he personifies it. And you have little moments that stick out in your head in terms of music that become a thread throughout your life. And one example, just to bring this whole sucker home here in the conversation, uh-huh. 2019, it is the Wednesday night before I'm going to get married. I'm out in Marin County, California. Wedding's going to be in Napa, but I'm staying with friends, and they take me to this venue just for dinner, and there's live music at this venue in Marin. And I'm not even really paying very close attention to the music, but it's live music. They sound pretty good over there. We're eating. We're talking. There's other stuff on my mind. As we are getting up to leave and go back to the car and drive home, the band starts to play their rendition of Bruce Springsteen's Atlantic City. Oh, wow. And they've got a great harmony going, and I I actually have it on my phone still. I filmed some of it Uh because it's not a top Springsteen song for me, but in that moment it was. And there was just something about that little flashpoint in time where I said, I was a little nervous heading into the weekend, obviously, and I said, you know what? This is going to be great. Yeah. They're playing Springsteen. Everything's going to be fine. Nice. That's a great story. Right. And, and that's just like I can't yeah. explain why, uh-huh. but I think if you're ever moved by music and it transports you to a certain time and place, I think people can understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, I dig that totally. Um, I think there are many renditions of that exact song that are done very, very well. Sure. And I do believe a lot of these deep track Springsteen songs that I mentioned earlier that he's recorded in the past five or ten years will be handed off to great country music stars. And they're, they're going to they're gonna make these songs awesome. You know, Springsteen sold his catalog, right, in the last year. That's, that's what we were told. Some of these songs are country music songs, pure. Interesting. So they'll be kind of reimagined. Uh, imagine Eric Church. They will be reimagined by people like Eric Church, and they will be, they will be hits. Oh, Big time. I love that idea. And then, of course, people can go back, and the kids can sure. actually discover Springsteen again. the thing is the cars and the trucks and the kids and the family and blah, blah, blah. Yep. All that stuff Blue is wrapped stuff. up in Springsteen tunes. Yeah. Well, Bill Hammer, this was a substantive conversation about news and politics, uh, but this was fun. But I want you to know that last summer I got into country music, and I'll save that story for you for next time. Next time. Because it's a good one. We'll do some country music talk with Bill Hammer next time. Meantime, co-host of America's Newsroom every weekday, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Fox News Channel, along with our friend Dana Perino, his podcast, Hammer Time. Bill, great to see you. Thank you, guy. And it's Dana's birthday. Happy birthday. Indeed. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour.
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today, we had Dana Perino back on the show, co-host of America's Newsroom. We had her colleague this hour, Bill Hemmer. So we got both of the hosts of that show. What a fantastic day here on the radio program. Here's part of what we discussed with Dana Perino following a big birthday that she just had. Listen. So speaking of press secretaries... Uh, Jen Psaki is done after tomorrow. She's moving on. She'll be a competitor. We wish her well. And there's uh, a new press secretary who will be behind the podium, Ms. Jean-Pierre. I have some issues with some of the stuff that she's said and tweeted. She's called our network racist. She called APAC racist. She's spread some election conspiracy theories about the Georgia election in 2018, about the presidential election in 2016. Uh, How much should someone who's coming in to speak on someone else's behalf How much should they be sort of held to account for what they've said in the past? How much of that is newsworthy or is she just a vessel for someone else's words? And so it maybe doesn't matter as much the stuff that she has or has not said in her own life. It's a great question. And Guy, you know, I didn't even have Twitter or Facebook in January of 2009 when I left the White House. And had I had Twitter or Facebook leading up to that, One, I would have had to own everything I had said before. Uh, Two, I still think I could have done a good job. But three, I would have to accept the fact that people might be skeptical of me. Is there – go ahead. So I think that in a way one of the things that she could do is to say – on her first day at the podium to say, I am honored to be here. I had a different job before I came to the White House. My job was to be a commentator, and I love that job, but I love this job as much, and I take it very seriously. I am a press secretary for all Americans, not just Democratic Americans. And so I might have to earn your trust. I intend to earn your trust. And you'll just have to, tr- you'll just have to go with me here. I'm not asking for a blank slate. I said what I said. I know I did, but from here on out, I hope that you can see me as a press secretary for all people. And I think that that guy might be the best way to try to deal with it. Do you think it's fair game for reporters to ask, like, hey, uh, you know, Peter Ducey could raise his hand and say, hey, do you think I'm a racist because I work at Fox News? Do you, do you view our entire network as racist? Because that's what you said on MSNBC not that long ago. Or, you know, Madam, Madam Press Secretary, did you, do you still believe that the 2016 election was stolen from Hillary Clinton? Do you still believe that Stacey Abrams had an election stolen from her? Like, is that a fair thing to ask a press secretary or is that sort of beyond the scope because you're really covering the president in the White House? Well, I've been in the briefing room. Everything's on the table. Yeah. And she can bristle at it, but she, and she needs to have a way to deal with it. Like if she were to do something like I just laid out, she could then refer to back to that, say, Peter, as I said, I had a different job before. My job now is to speak on behalf of the president of the United States I'm happy to answer any of those questions. I'm not saying that I'm deleting those tweets. They exist, and they are what they are. But my job now is to be here, and do you have another question? Aside from this narrow issue about her statements from the past that I think are objectionable, just broadening it out to the job description, the challenges that she has ahead of her. She's been the deputy. You were in that role as well. Then you move into, you know, primetime, where you are the person. It's a different job. There's a lot more scrutiny. There's probably a lot more accountability, I would imagine, than being someone who occasionally briefs as opposed to being like, you know, the main event. Mm -hmm. What, you know, setting aside any policy differences, 
What are your major pieces of advice to Corrine Jean-Pierre as she embarks on this new part of her career in a very demanding and challenging job that you, of course, did? Well, I think I have a feeling that she probably has a pretty good working relationship with everybody in the White House right now. And I think that includes the White House press corps. One thing I've heard that is um, a real positive for them is that they run the operation of the press office very well. Um, I don't know if everybody would agree with that, but that's just what I've heard. And that is certainly an important part of the job. And that includes like making sure the press gets where they need to be in order to be uh, at the press conference when the president's going to take questions from this or that. So there's the logistics of it. Then there's making sure that everybody in the White House knows that you're an honest broker because you want everyone to be fulsome with you about opportunities, challenges, and crises that are on, on the horizon. Um, it really means you have to have excellent deputies that are going to have their finger on everything. For example, I cannot believe that the White House is so late to dealing with this baby formula issue. Mm-hmm. It is not a new issue. It started in January. And now we're at crisis levels. I mean, who is not who is not telling them that they better get on top of things? I don't understand that. Well, they claim today, and Saki said today, well, we have been on it for months. And I feel like you're just digging your own grave here. If you're saying we've been aware, we've been on it for months, and these are the results, I mean, what does that say to the American people? Mm-hmm. I don't – yeah, I, I, I think that they've got a real problem there. Um, and – I know it'll be interesting to see how she handles how the left wants to pull the president even further to the left. And based on the things that we've read that she said in the past, you would think that that, those are her instincts as well. Yeah, she's one of them. Can Can she overcome those instincts to protect the president and the American people to make sure that the, uh, well, I I don't know what could prevail. Common sense, the right policies. I mean, I don't know if she will, if if she will do that. Um, I wish her the best. America needs a good, strong press secretary, I believe, because I think that it's not just uh, here in America that it matters, but people around the world that watch everything a press secretary says. So we need her to be strong and solid. Dana Perino, I want to ask you about this new uh, talking point catchphrase moniker that we've heard now from Biden repeatedly and others around him, Ultra MAGA. I don't know who came up with this, where they... You know, I guess I hate it so like much. Focus grouped it or something. Ultra MAGA. Like, in what world do they think this is actually useful or effective? I, and I, we actually mentioned this during a commercial break on TV yesterday. They ran this playbook against Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. Mm-hmm. They called him Mr. MAGA, Trump with a vest on, abortion, abortion, abortion. That was their campaign. They lost that campaign in a state Biden won by 10. They're like, hey, you know what? Let's do it nationally. Your thoughts on that? My full interview with Dana Perino and today's show in its entirety available online and on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, my personal nightmare in an airplane played out in Florida, incredible audio, an incredible resolution. We'll tell you about it right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you can catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel, Greg and the crew. Looking forward to that. Here on the radio side, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every single day. 
Well, I fly a lot in my life, for work, for pleasure, and I have not been a nervous flyer since I was a kid. I flew airplanes and commercial flights all the time when I was very young. For a few months in about fifth grade, I got very scared of airplanes, kind of out of nowhere. I had never had a problem before. I got over it, and I've never really had a problem again. In fact, air travel, commercial air travel, is among the safest modes of transportation ever known to mankind. There has not been a major American air crash in years, thank God. This story definitely plays to an underlying fear. Now, of course, this is not a commercial airline situation. There was only one pilot. But a story out of Palm Beach, Florida this week, where a passenger with zero flying experience had to try to land a small airplane after the pilot suffered a medical emergency. So the pilot got very ill or was incapacitated, could not fly the plane. And the passenger, who had no experience at all, had to radio the control tower and get talked through the landing, which is just, A, remarkable because it worked, B, terrifying. This is the stuff of nightmares for me. I was talking to one of my friends who is very well-to-do and flies on private jets occasionally, and she said, I'll only do private jets or private aviation where there are two pilots. And I'm like, oh, well, that must be nice. I would love to agree. But this person evidently had no choice. And there's audio of the exchange over the radio with air traffic control out of Palm Beach. Listen to Cut 20. I've got a serious situation here. My pilot has gone incoherent. I have no idea how to fly the airplane, but I'm in the Number 333, Lima Delta. Roger, what's your position? I have no idea. I can see the coast of Florida in front of me, and I have no idea. Roger, uh, try to hold the wings level and see if you can start uh, descending for me. Uh, push forward on the uh, controls and uh, descend at a very slow rate. Level maintain 5,000 and uh, follow the coast, and we're going to try to find you here on the radar. Okay, I've got the coast with my headlights. Uh... Number three, Lima Delta, Palm Beach approach is going to talk to you. They're going to direct you to the Palm Beach Airport. You should hear them on this frequency momentarily. Turn on uh, Lima 3. we got an emergency inbound uh, downstairs, so we're trying to get everybody. Uh, we're opening up the runways now. And appreciate uh, everybody's patience here. Uh, you just witnessed a couple passengers land that plane. Man, they did a great job. Passengers land at the airplane? That's correct. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no. Great job. No flying experience. Unreal. Robert Morgan is his name, a resident of Jupiter, Florida. Like, what's your position? I, I don't know. That was also a cool-as-a-cucumber response from the tower, by the way, where the guy comes in at the very beginning. I've got a serious situation. My pilot has gone incoherent. I have no idea how to fly the airplane. And the response is, Roger, what's your position? It's like not a can you repeat that? Uh-oh. It's just like, all right, we're going to do this. I've never even done a flight simulator video game. I don't know if I could have pulled this off. So unbelievable kudos have to go out 
of course, to this passenger who was thrust into this position, and he acted heroically. He was super competent. He was able to do something very complex and difficult that he had never done before and never done anything close to it before. Now, of course, his mind was, I'm sure, very focused because his survival depended on it. But that's just amazing. You also have to give huge credit to the air traffic controllers who talked him through it and talked him and piece by piece explained to him how to land that airplane, figuring out what kind of plane it was, what the controls looked like, what he had to do, just very rudimentary basic stuff. You can't even use pilot jargon or say, look at this particular instrument. You have to describe it like you're talking to a six-year-old because that's what's required in the situation. Obviously, they were able to pull it off. And there's footage of this. I mean, it's a small plane, but I count one, two, three, four, five windows on each side. It's not like it was teeny tiny. And one major false move, and it could have been a disaster and a tragedy. But it wasn't. So a round of applause to everyone involved. I hope the pilot also is okay. But I've sort of avoided reading too much about the story until we decided to do it here on the show because it makes me anxious. My father-in-law is an amateur pilot. And I was once flying with him in Colorado. I was in the co-pilot seat did not understand anything in front of me and just counted on him to get everything right. And he did. And it was perfect. If something, God forbid, had happened to him, it would have just been absolute panic on my part. My father-in-law is so good, actually. Same plane. He has a a small plane. He and his wife, my mother-in-law, they were flying a few months ago over the mountains in Colorado. And while they were Towards the end, but still in the middle of their flight, the lone engine on the plane quit. And he had to glide that puppy into an airport. And he did it. And he got a bunch of, like, virtual high fives and thumbs up from the commercial pilots who were there. I heard there was an emergency presence on the runway just in case. But he's highly trained. And in a moment of extreme stress, when something went terribly wrong, he knew what to do, and thank God they were both fine. But this, to me, what we just played you in that situation in Florida, far worse. Because obviously it is, shall we say, suboptimal if you're in an airplane and the engine dies, right? That, like, should never happen. But it did. At least my father-in-law was very well-trained knew exactly what to do, and executed to a T. And all the practice and all the simulations and all the real-life stuff, that all came into play, and he beautifully accomplished what he needed to do based on what he knew and had been trained to do. In Florida, it was a dude with zero experience. And he got it done. I mean, my hat is just off. My jaw dropped when I saw this. And Christine, I know I said this was a nightmare story for me, 
and you immediately said, same for you, and you're, shall we say, a bit more excitable than I am typically, I feel like you would just pass out from the stress and no one would survive. Listen, I would really, I was going to get on here and be like, you know what? I feel like I would have been exactly like that passenger. Cool, calm, collected, land that airplane. But actually, I didn't even think about this. I actually agree with you. I think I would have just passed out just from, like, the actual situation. I don't think my mind would have been able to handle it. I think I probably would have just passed out. I think you would have panicked. The person would have been like, what's your location? I don't know. Try to level the wings. I don't know what that is. What's a wing? You need to try to descend. I don't know which way is down. And then you just pass out. And then it's all over. I think that's how you would have probably dealt with it. Don't you have to push forward to go up or something? No, I think it's the other way around. Oh, well, whatever. Uh, Some pilots can write in and correct us. They can tweet at you at CookiesJar1988. I'm pretty sure to descend, you push down. Oh, okay. I don't know why. But anyway, it just, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have been good. I am so fascinated by this story. Just, I'm, I'm actually very fascinated by um, air traffic controllers, how they do what they do. And, you know, how many airplanes are in the air at one time? I'm, I'm fascinated by them. We should actually book one one day. I, oh, please, I could do a Curious Christine. I have so many questions. Okay, so let's put that in the hopper as an idea. I'll leave you with this quote from an aviation expert quoted in the New York Post on this story. Quote, this is the first time I've ever heard of one of these airplanes being landed by somebody that has no aeronautical experience. I mean, no kidding. Just amazing. Back here for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show tomorrow, back in D.C., looking forward to being home. Thank you for tuning in. See you on Gutfeld tonight on the news channel. Have a wonderful evening. It's The Guy Benson Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.